1: I've been receiving some requests from some of you to release the three podcasts that I created years ago on the 1964 unsolved murder of Beverly Jaros. These three episodes were among the first podcasts that I ever created, and it was under the name American Crimecast. You will hear interviews from Beverly's sister, Carol, along with her mother, Eleanor. I am very saddened to share that Eleanor has since passed away. Today I'm joined here with... Carol, Beverly's sister, who in 1964, when Beverly was murdered, Carol was 12. I'm also joined with Beverly's mother, who is now in her mid-90s.
0: I'm Carol, Beverly's sister, and I want to say a little bit about my family background. We were very close to our maternal grandparents, regularly had Sunday dinners with them, and often during the week after my mom went back to work, we were also close to my great-grandmother, who lived upstairs at my grandmother's house. We would take um, probably yearly family vacations in the summertime with them. I can remember going to Niagara Falls, Washington, D.C., New York City, and Montreal with them. My grandparents were the only ones to have a key to our house. They only lived less, probably less than a mile away. I feel like I had an idyllic childhood. My best friend Jackie and I were kind of tomboyish climbed trees, rode our bikes incessantly, swam at the local pool, went horseback riding and played outside till dark, went ice skating at the pond near the fireman's house, and all that changed on December 28, 1964. One of my first memories of Beverly was when we were probably seven and eleven, and Beverly would make up stories to tell me before I fell asleep. I often think that this was the precursor to her love of writing because she was always known to write her friends witty little poems. She made stories and plays up. Also, when we were little, we made a childish pack, never to get married, but we were going to buy a trailer and live together because it would be so cozy. Beverly did go through a gawky pre-adolescent phase. She had braces and wore glasses, and I'm not sure when the transformation to the beautiful girl she became transpired, but I'm thinking it was close to the end of eighth grade. I think this is when her former elementary school classmates would come to the house to be around her, and there was a particular boy at the car wash that started coming to our house, and his name was Danny Schulte. As I said, Beverly was not allowed to date, But Danny and the boys certainly did come to her house. Beverly wasn't very athletic. She didn't know how to swim, nor did she go to the neighborhood pool. She was more literary type. She read incessantly. She always was writing stories. She loved to listen to the Camelot album starring Robert Goulet, who was on Broadway at that time. Once, she and her best friend Margie went to the Silver Grill at Higby's. In downtown Cleveland, and Robert Goulet was singing there, and came to their table and sang to them. My dad did buy her golf clubs and took her golfing a few times because he always wanted to make one of us into a great woman golfer. That never happened. My grandparents joined a supper club at the Sheraton downtown Cleveland and would take Beverly to dinner with them. She and Roger. The boyfriend that she really ended up liking when she was 16 would go to the music carnival together, and he took her to the art museum.
1: December 28, 1964, Garfield Heights, Ohio. That Monday after Christmas, Beverly Jarris, a 16-year-old high school junior, and her sister, Carol, who was 12, we're off school for Christmas break. On this morning, the two had breakfast with their parents, Ted and Eleanor, before seeing them off to work. At 10 a.m., Carol and Beverly leave their house and head towards Grandma's. The route they took is through Turneytown Shopping Center. They stopped at F.W. Woolworth for a hairnet for Grandma, as well as Huff Bakery, for a loaf of bread. By 11, they have arrived at Grandma's house. Beverly calls Barbara, and they discuss their plans for the day. 11.30, Beverly calls Margie, her best friend, and explains that her and Barbara would be over between 1 and 2 p.m. 12.15, the neighbor boy to Grandma's house, arrives home after an interview he had in town. As he approaches his house, his mother asks him to take Beverly home. 12.30 p.m., Beverly arrives home and receives a call from a jeweler explaining that her great-grandma's necklace was not worth fixing. 1 p.m., Beverly calls her mother and relays the message from the jeweler. Soon after, Beverly calls Barbara Kralik, and they talk on the phone until 1:15. Around this time, Beverly receives an unknown phone call. She took a note saying Stephen Stakowitz called. We'll call back later. This name turned out to be a fake. 1:20 p.m. Grandma calls Beverly. Beverly explained that Barbara was at the door and she needed to go. p.m. Barbara arrives at Beverly's house. Her mom dropped her off. Barbara proceeded to the side door, rang the doorbell ten times. She noticed the door was open, however the storm door was locked. She then proceeded to the front door, leafed through a magazine for a few minutes. She says she noticed what sounded like furniture being moved from the upstairs bedroom. Thinking she was being stood up or teased, Barbara leaves and heads home. At 2 p.m., Barbara calls Beverly. No answer. At 2.45 p.m., Margie calls Barbara, asking where the two girls were. 3.45 p.m., Margie calls Grandma, asking about Beverly. 4 p.m., Carol tries calling home, No answer. Grandma calls Mr. Jarrus at work and explains they are unable to get a hold of Beverly. ten p.m., Mr. Jarrus arrives home. As he pulls into the driveway, he is able to hear a radio playing very loudly from the inside. So he hurries inside, up the stairs, and into the girls' bedroom. 4.15 p.m., Carol calls home. Mr. Jarris answers. He screams murder into the phone. Beverly was strangled with a rope, stabbed 42 times. Her clothing was yanked away from her torso, yet she was not sexually assaulted. Her murder would be ruled a strangulation as her cause of death, but it is said the knife wounds would have been plenty enough to kill her.
0: This is one of Beverly's poems that she wrote. It's called Thoughts on Life. From out of the depths of my soul, there arises a certain fear. What if I should die within the next year? Life for me has just begun. All my dreams would be unfulfilled, all my work left undone. All my goals unreached, my life would have been in vain.
1: At the time Beverly was murdered, Carol, you were 12 years old. It's now been almost 52 years. So I hope that there are some questions that maybe you can answer. Questions that could give us updates on if there has been any new information put out about the case. Also, maybe some clarification on facts behind Beverly's murder and your family. Prior to Beverly's murder, reports stated that someone continuously called the house and that also your father once had to chase someone off your lawn as a man was staring up at the bedroom window that you shared with your sister, Beverly. What updates, if any, have there been on this? And were you guys able to find out who the stalker was?
0: There would be no way that the police could obviously catch the person who just looked up at our bedroom window because that was prior to the murder and it was dark. And my father had to get out of the car and try to chase him down the street. There would be no way that we could ever find out who that person was. And it only happened once. It was not numerous times. It was a one-time event.
1: This case has several theories put out there by the community. One theory is that this could have been one of Beverly's peers. Another is that the reason this case is taking almost 52 years to solve is because it could have detectives or city officials involved.
0: I think it could very well have been a peer of Beverly's. I I am unaware of any detective or policeman or, or person who worked for the city who could have done this.
1: Leading up to the murder, your house received several phone calls where the caller would call the house and immediately hang up the phone when someone answered. Did these calls stop after Beverly was murdered?
0: We got a private phone number at that point in time, so yes, it did. they did stop.
1: We spoke to someone who also lived in your neighborhood at the time that your sister was killed. Something that they told us was that they felt that the neighborhood was a very safe one, until your sister was murdered, of course. Was there any circumstances up until the time that Beverly was murdered that made you or your family feel uncomfortable to be at home?
0: Not in my opinion, probably not my parents' opinion, but it seems that Beverly felt afraid for some reason, that we really don't know the reason why. She always made sure that the doors were locked, and she'd always peek out the curtains to make sure who was there before she'd answer the door. But I don't know where her fear came from.
1: Barbara and Beverly were good friends. How often do they go downtown together?
0: Beverly went downtown probably shopping a few times with Barb, and I know that she also went to the art museum one time with Barb, but that, that's all I know.
1: Since Beverly's murder... There have been theories and rumors that have been spread about Beverly, her friends, and her life in general. One such theory is that when Beverly would tell people that she was going to the museum, she would really go to listen to jazz and poetry instead.
0: No, there's no indication that she ever did that, especially like the jazz that would be, she'd be out really late at night, and I don't know who'd be driving her there and bringing her home. To my knowledge, Barb didn't drive, Beverly didn't drive, so I don't know how that would ever take place. There was never any indication that she ever went to poetry meetings or anything like that, only the art museum.
1: The assistant prosecutor for your county is quoted in the newspaper saying that something significant happened the day before Beverly was murdered. Can you tell me a little bit about that day?
0: Well, the day before Beverly was murdered, we had a little neighborhood get-together, and we used to always invite the two neighbors on either side of us. Mr. and Mrs. Weber did not come that night because Mrs. Weber's mother was ill, so it was really only Mr. and Mrs. Zemgolis that came. Their daughters did not come. They were much older than Beverly. There was no reason why they would come. They had their own little lives by that time, something that Paul Miles said in the newspaper, that something happened on December 27th that was significant to what happened on December 28th, but if that was the case, he never expressed what that was to me. I have no idea.
1: Prior to Beverly being murdered, she had received anonymous gifts. Can you tell me about those gifts?
0: In the summer of 1964, Beverly did receive the silver uh, ring and a bracelet. It is actually, we do not have those items in our possession. They are with the evidence at Garfield Heights Police Department. Um, someone left it in the back door that we never used, the back of our house. And there was like a little message that said to Bev and... That's all we really know about, him. it was in a Higby box.
1: Did the ring fit Beverly?
0: I know that she wore the ring, so it must have fit her, but I do know I do remember like having silver rings that they were adjustable, and I'm sure it was probably I don't think it was an expensive ring, so I'm sure it was the adjustable type, so it would probably would have fit anybody.
1: Did she ever discover who sent them to her?
0: I don't think Beverly knew who sent them. um, We certainly didn't have any idea.
1: How did she react when she discovered the ring and bracelet?
0: It kind of freaked her out. I remember her like pulling down the shades and like wondering who who sent them. Um, But she did wear, I'm basing this on a statement that Margie made um, from the ME file um, that she did wear the ring a number of times.
1: One name came up on a social forum, but there was a question on if Beverly would have known who he was. Did she know a younger boy with a last name of Crozak?
0: Yes, she did, because he worked with Danny Schulte at the car wash, and so she did know him.
1: Danny Schulte was a boy that hung around Beverly when she was 14 and he was 17. Although they were not allowed to formally date, because of Beverly's parents. They did spend a good amount of time together. He was three years older than Beverly and was described as the greaser type of guy. Danny dropped out of school in 10th grade and enlisted in the Air Corps. She broke it off with him in her sophomore year. You mentioned to me that he seemed to have taken it heart, sending flowers, an Easter basket, letters, showing up at her all-girls Catholic school after class, After Beverly's murder, did he stay in touch with the family? My parents
0: were never in touch with Danny Schulte after Beverly's death. However, recently he has sponsored a page for Beverly on Find a Grave website. And at that point, I I did email him and thanked him for sponsoring this page in Beverly's memory. And he wrote me a very, very nice note prior to the memorial mass that we had for her on her 50th anniversary, and we have exchanged a few emails since then. Danny is living in Israel. At this point in time, he is remarried.
1: Was Beverly friends with either of the two neighbor boys?
0: Um, Well, actually, we knew Bruce better because he worked at the library, so we would see him all the time at the library. Also, he went to our church, and there was a couple times when Beverly went to later mass than my mom and I did, and he would drive her home. That's about the only connection I think that Beverly had with Bruce. I don't think there was any friendship at all with John, although his dad fixed TVs, and his dad came over a couple times to fix our TV tubes.
1: Something that you enjoyed doing at that time was to go to the riding stables. Did Beverly have any interest, and did she ever go to the riding stables with you?
0: Beverly never went to the riding stables with me. She was not interested in riding. I would go. My grandparents would take me a lot of the times. My mom and Mr. Weber had a... My next-door neighbor, he had a niece that was my age, and when she spent the weekend with Mr. and Mrs. Weber, he would take us to the riding stables.
1: There was a priest that was questioned because it was discovered that he kept a photo of Beverly with him. Was Beverly ever counseled by a priest or had any involvement with them? And also, did you guys find out why he had the photo?
0: Yes, this question came up because of what was written in a master detective magazine. Beverly was never counseled by a priest, but there is a reason why a priest was carrying her picture around. This priest came into our lives after Beverly was murdered. He actually was a member of St. Stanislaus Parish when he was growing up. He grew up in the neighborhood that my dad grew up in, and he became a Franciscan monk. And after Beverly was murdered, He visited us, and unless you're Catholic, you're going to find this to be a very strange story. He likened her death to a saint called Maria Goretti. She was a young Italian girl, I think 11 or 12, very young. And a boy was making sexual advances to her, and she resisted him, and he stabbed her to death. This priest kind of thought that Beverly was like also a martyr, like this little St. Maria Goretti was. And so what he did was he took Beverly's picture and had multiple copies made. And on the back of her picture, he stamped Beverly Jarris, born October 1st, 1948, martyred December 28th, 1964, Garfield Heights, Cleveland, Ohio. And Catholics have this feeling that if someone is a saint or someone's in heaven you can petition them to to ask them to ask god to grant you whatever you're requesting in your life so what he did was he would take this picture and anybody who had who needed an intercession this priest thought that their petitions could be granted through Beverly's intercession. This might explain it a little more. Um, This is a letter that Father John Schnittenberg wrote to us. Dearest friends, today I received another letter from Sister Doreen. She has the whole mother house and novitiate enthused about Beverly, and she distributed the 20 photos I sent her in minutes. I'm sending her more, and then I'm going to have more made. Could you give me Bev's birth date, please, because I want to have a rubber stamp made with something like this on it. Beverly Jarris, born on October 1st, 1948, martyred on December 28th, 1964, in Garfield Heights, Cleveland, Ohio. When I get the new photos, I will stamp this information on the back of each one in red. Up until now, I've been writing it on, except for the stamp date of her death. More and more people are becoming interested in Beverly and getting their petitions granted through her intercession. It is my hope that someday she will be a publicly venerated as a modern-day saint and martyr, an example to the young people of our day, with much love and a priestly blessing, Father John.
2: A detective came and knocked on the door, and I said, "Is it Renee?" And he just gave me that solemn look. It was the worst day ever. The Proof Podcast is back with a new case and a new season. 23 years ago, 18-year-old Renee
0: Ramos went missing. Her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town. I don't think that they arrested the right people. It's about time somebody's trying to do
2: something. She had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered. They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack.
1: You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. They've been judging me my whole life.
2: You can listen now to season two of Proof wherever you get your podcasts and follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask Did you kill Renee?
1: As we deep dive into these chilling tales, we all need a moment of escape, a way to unwind without the shadow of the night creeping in. Here's where recess mood comes in. Crafted with real fruit and infused with mood-lifting magnesium and stress-balancing aptogens, Recess Mood is your guilt-free retreat. With just 20 calories, no added sugar, it's not just a sparkling water. It's a sanctuary in a can. Imagine unwinding during a gripping episode of foul play with a can of strawberry rose, or my favorite, raspberry lemon letting the stress melt away without the aftermath of alcohol. It's my little secret to staying balanced in the chaos of a busy life. You deserve a healthier way to unwind, to recharge, and to prepare for the next journey into the unknown with foul play. And for the devoted foul play listeners, you deserve a healthier way to unwind. Head to takerrecess.com Shane to get 15% off Recess Mood your go-to alcohol replacement. After Beverly received the gifts and your dad saw a man staring up into your bedroom window, Beverly carried around a letter opener for protection. Do you still have this letter opener?
0: Yes, I have the letter opener. It was never part of the crime. She kept it on her desk. She did not keep it on the nightstand. And... Um, There was a James Renner who wrote a couple chapters or a book about Beverly, and he was the only one who ever said it disappeared. Um, I do have it. What really disappeared that nobody's mentioned is her diary.
1: Yeah, from a conversation we had earlier, you had mentioned that Beverly did keep a diary, and that it was never found after the murder. How long did it take for you to be able to sleep back into the bedroom that you shared with Beverly?
0: It was probably on and off. I I don't know that I ever spent a whole night upstairs after we moved back into that house. I probably started off there, and then i just go into the spare room on the bottom of the floor, uh, and the first floor to be near my parents. Um, It was very hard to sleep in that
1: bedroom. Several years later, while you were off at college, someone broke into the house and stole jewelry. Was that jewelry... Beverly's?
0: No, it was a, a gold watch that belonged to my dad, dad's father. And my dad's father, my grandpa, who I never met, died when my dad was three. And so it was the only um, item that my dad had of his father's.
1: Also, the backings of pictures were taken from the house. Can you tell me about that?
0: Those pictures were up in our bedroom, um, there was, like, misconceptions that they were down in our family living room, but they were up in Beverly's bedroom. She bought the prints, and I think it was at Cleveland Art Museum, and my dad framed them. I have no idea why anybody would take the backings off that those pictures. Um, I have no idea.
1: Detective Horrigan, who worked Beverly's case until he died, is quoted as saying that he knew who the killer was on the second day but could not prove it. Did he ever mention to the family who this could have been?
0: No, he did not, and um, I have been in contact with Billy Horrigan, his grandson, and even his grandson does not know who he felt did it. I think it. it I think everybody thought that he um, thought it was Roger Beverly's boyfriend, but we have no way of proving that or or knowing who he really thought. But my personal feeling is is that because he was so convinced that he knew who did it, that maybe other people were overlooked. And that's why this has not been solved in 52 years.
1: And how did Beverly know Roger?
0: Roger was Beverly's boyfriend um, at the time of her death. Um, Margie, her best friend, introduced Beverly to Roger. Roger was Margie's first cousin. And um, I'd like to say that Roger has maintained contact with my mother throughout the years.
1: The last person to see Beverly alive, besides the killer, was the neighbor to your grandmother, who took Beverly home that day. Can you tell us about who he is?
0: Jim Monjolesky was the son of my grandparents' neighbors, Sonia and Johnny Monjolesky, He was the young man that drove my sister home after she visited my grandparents' house for lunch. And he pulled into the driveway, dropped her off, and then at a later time during that day, his mom asked Jimmy to drive my grandmother over to the house. That's when we knew that something terrible had happened to Beverly and he did drive my grandma over to the house. And the policemen or detectives actually brought him up into the room to show him her body. And he actually, um, I, I don't know why they did that, but I think it was because he was the last one to really see her alive other than whoever murdered her. And maybe it was to see his reaction. But I do want to say that there has been talk about him changing his clothes, and why did he change his clothes? Well, that morning, he was on a job interview. And so when he went home, after dropping my sister off at the house, he went home and changed his clothes from his interview clothes into regular clothes. There is no way that Jimmy could have had a knife and a um, uh, rope. On a spur of the moment, taking Beverly home. He had nothing to do with this. And he is currently, I believe, an eye doctor.
1: Another boy that there have been questions about is John Palian. Did he attend Beverly School?
0: Yes, he did. I don't know if he was two or three years ahead of Beverly, but he did go to St. Tree School.
1: Did the company that your dad worked for have any labor problems?
0: No. Um, It was a very small company. There were, like, maybe four partners, and they just had, like, either college kids or or, um, young men working there. There was probably no more than 10 or 15 people who actually worked there. He owned a lighting manufacturing company. He actually made parts for lighting fixtures.
1: There is rumor of a book coming out about Beverly... With the book coming out, what made you want to work with us to tell Beverly's story?
0: Well, the book has been a work in progress um, probably for the past five years. And um, I'm thinking that my mom isn't getting any younger. And I was hoping that um, this story could be put out for people. My mom is already 90 and a half, and um, I'd like to have people know the story um, and I I think that the author um, he's not due for a sabbatical for another year so I'm thinking that the book might not even be out for another two two or three years and um, I didn't want to wait anymore to tell my story.
1: Who is writing that book?
0: His name is Jim Bedell. He's a professor at um, Cuyahoga Community College and he has written many crime novels and um, he's very interesting writer. I mean, he is a full-time professor, and I think that's why the book um, is is delayed.
1: Your dad discovered Beverly's body. How has her murder affected your dad and your mom?
0: I'll always feel sorry for my poor dad finding Beverly... Um, murdered in the way she was it was the most catastrophic event in his life and after she had died um my dad would like be bargaining with god and um saying oh please if i could find out who did this you know he would say copious amount of rosaries and he was going to church in the hopes that um, someday this killer would be found Um, my mom she was just heartbroken And um, as a 12-year-old, I thought, well, maybe in a year it won't hurt hurt her so much. Maybe things will get better. A year came and went, and then two years, three years, five years. I mean, it was just tortuous, and the pain just went on forever. Um, I think things turned around for my parents um, after I got married and started having my four children. And um, being a grandparent certainly helped them gave them something new to look forward to and love and a reason to to live. Um, Somewhere around 1982, my parents did get a divorce, um, but this did not prevent them from still maintaining a cordial and friendly relationship throughout um, their lives. Um, My dad, every Sunday, would pick up my maternal grandparents and then they'd go to Brecksville where my mom lived um, after the divorce, pick her up, and then they'd come to my house, and um, they, they would just be a part of our lives every Sunday. And we'd have dinner together. and um, every holiday was spent together. Then, after my dad started was ended up in a nursing home, my mom visited him a couple times a week, and they were actually friends till the day he died in two thousand twelve. At the time of the divorce, my dad and, and mom were both living in um, the house that Beverly was murdered in, and my dad did stay in that house till um, he went into a nursing home. Um, there, was a, there is a misconception that, that, that my dad never changed anything in that house, and that house was exactly the same as it was in, in 1964, and this was not true. Um, the furniture that was um, upstairs in our bedroom. That was taken out of there. Um, In fact, my grandmother slept in a bed. My grandchildren had a dresser from our bedroom. Um, The kitchen was completely um, renovated. And uh, it, it, it is not true that it remained exactly as it was in 1964.
1: There are two Facebook groups about Beverly's murder where their members discuss the case and draw their own theories. Are you familiar with these groups, and how do you feel about their existence?
0: Well, um, I think there's an ugly side of social media, and um, I let me preface the whole two closed groups. Before there were these two closed groups concerning my sister, there was uh, just a it was called Enduring Mystery of Beverly Jerris on Topics, and people who had screen names would post the most outrageous things, and they'd be vulgar, and there was horrible language, and it never, ever bothered me because they were nameless, faceless people. You didn't know who was saying it. You just could say, those people need a life. There's something wrong with them. Well, then we have the advent of two closed groups of um, um, concerning Beverly And you see names and faces, and you see that they have lives and families and grandchildren. And yet, they can make grossly inaccurate claims concerning my family. Um, I am addressing my comments almost exclusively to the one group called Unsolved Crime of Beverly Jairus. Um, because they were an offshoot of the big group. They were actually kicked, so the people who started it kicked, were kicked off the big group because of the horrible things they said about Beverly's friend, Barb. And so when they started this group, there was no parameters for niceties or, or um, respect for the family. Anything went. So they, I, I actually joined the group. And was on it, and they immediately started talking about my dad. And um, it, apparently, in 1964, um, there were the gossips of 1964 spawned the gossips of 2015 and 16. And my dad was never considered a suspect, and yet um, in the court of public opinion on this site. Um, They said nasty things about him. They said one person posted that he came home and before calling the police, he had, he washed his clothes. Um, Of course, there's nothing to back up these statements and they accepted them. They didn't challenge anybody who made these terrible remarks. Um, They would read something in those detective magazines and they would make a blanket judgment um, uh, concerning, concerning, okay, one detective magazine, which I already mentioned, mentioned that Beverly was counseled by a priest. Therefore, maybe she was abused, sexually abused by her family, maybe even the grandparents. Um, my mom, who had a premonition that something might have happened to Beverly. There might have been mental illness in the families. Um, very disrespectful, inaccurate things. Um, There's one person who has her own um, murder, personal murder. Her brother was murdered. And she even looked at my 12-year-old picture in the paper, 1964, and said I I looked disingenuous, like I was hiding something. That was especially hurtful from someone who had to have had people talk about her family also. Um, the administrator, the original administrator, said she followed the golden rule. But that golden rule did not apply to my family. Um, they were not there were. OK, and OK, I should really say there's probably just eight to 10 of these people who are so cruel, that they're unable to put themselves in our position. How would they feel if this had happened to them and people were gossiping about their family? Um, The definition of gossip is unconstrained conversation or reports about other people typically involving details that are not confirmed to be true. They have to be either obtuse or cruel not to be able to um, realize what this has done to me and my family. Um, blaming victims, bashing Barb. When, when Barb's brother came to her defense in a private message to um, the administrator, she became indignant, as many on the site also became indignant, that, that this brother would actually defend his sister. Um, I acknowledge that Beverly's tragedy means something different to them than it does to me and, and her loved ones. To them, it's entertainment value. It's a captivating murder, murder mystery. Who done it? Like a novel or a movie. But it's so disrespectful to us when it's in a public forum on social media. I'm making a request for respect to Beverly and her family. Unfortunately, this group, like other closed groups, is exclusive, and it allows people who perpetuate hateful narratives. Um, I cannot believe that the administrator continuously asks for friends of Beverly to come on the page to talk about Beverly, and yet they threw out Beverly's homeroom teacher who knew her intimately for two and a half years. They threw out a classmate of Beverly's who knew her and they also threw out my daughters. Um, we were on a family vacation in October. And conversationally, I was talking to my son and my daughter about the terrible things they post about my, our family. And my little six-year-old grandson heard this. And he was taking it all in, unbeknownst to us. And here's what he wrote. He says, Uncle Uncle Patrick thinks that these girls are doing articles about my grandma that are very, very bad. It hurts me and my family's feelings. They are scamming. Um, In the end, uh, um, I'm talking about public, uh, I mean, social media, the ugliness of it. I have a quote from Pope Francis, and he's talking about the ugliness spawned by social media. And What he said is, what is it, I wonder, that is feeding the destructive, hypercritical trend in social media to demean, muckrake, and otherwise do damage? And I'm, I'm afraid this is not Pope Francis' words, but I think the real ugliness is just the ugliness in our hearts.
1: After speaking with Beverly's family about the hurt they feel with some of the posts on social media, I decided to read through some of them for myself. Since the day after Beverly was murdered, people grew fascinated by the case, hearing about the strongly held opinions and theories, and how they were forcibly pushed onto the family and friends of Beverly's. It is clear to me that Beverly has not been the only victim from this horrific murder. Barb was very good friends with Beverly. I cannot fathom the difficulty she must have faced knowing she was outside the very house while her friend was being strangled and stabbed 42 times. Yet, had she arrived five minutes earlier, or had one of the doors been unlocked, she undoubtedly would have found a similar fate as Beverly. Yet Barbara was teased, accused, and questioned every day, and after almost 52 years, it has not stopped. I cannot read to you some of the comments about Barb because of the extent of their content. To this day, Barb continually feels the burden these people have placed on her shoulders. Margie, Beverly's best friend, wrote to us. Here is what she had to say. Beverly and I first knew each other at St. Therese grade school. In fact, our families usually met at the same area at Sunday Mass., We became especially close friends our junior year at Marymount High School. We were together often, and I spent many an early evening with Beverly and her family. Their home had an atmosphere of love and security, which I felt extended to me as well. Never did I sense anything otherwise. I also knew Beverly's grandmother and grandpa, and knew them as kind and gentle people. On December 28, 1964, Beverly and Barb were to visit my home early that afternoon. I did not know Barb as well as Beverly, and we agreed that they would meet at Bev's and then walk together to my house. The plans were set, and Bev and I talked about them just a couple hours before they were due to arrive. Both girls were very responsible, and we were definitely planning our annual visit Over the Christmas holiday, Beverly would always call if she were running late. I swear that under no circumstance would she have ever misled me. Barb has suffered enough for the cruel remarks and losing her good friend. I remember her as very gifted and musically talented. The vile, unsubstantiated statements that have been posted on the internet are slanderous and libelous. To this day, this experience has deeply affected me and is heartbreaking to me and my entire family. My last time with Beverly was on December 24th, 1964, when she and her family joined ours for a Christmas party at our house. My parents always thought of Beverly as one of their girls. Sincerely, Mary Margaret. I picked through some of the comments on the Facebook groups about Beverly. Some have been shortened and others I decided not to include because of their level of speech. If Barb and Margie were these great friends, why aren't they on any of these sites giving their opinions since they know Beverly so well? This crap about gag orders and how it's still an investigation is ridiculous. And so is the fact they want privacy and don't want to be bothered. It has always amazed me to see how closed mouth both of these girls were. These two girls don't want to be bothered. It's beyond selfishness. To me it's pure disgust. This makes me wonder even more if both of these girls were in on this crime. Before I go and actually do something today, just one more comment and something that has always bothered me about the family dynamics. Remember the photos of the Jays seated with Carol in the middle, trust me. I have seen the face of grief far too many times. It looks exactly like Mr. and Mrs. Jaris. It does not look like Carol. Carol looks like she is pretending to look like something she isn't feeling. My gut tells me something is odd. I haven't a clue what it is. Back in the 60s, no one talked about incest. Ever. Also, no one would ever suspect a priest, parent, fireman or policemen, why was Beverly receiving counseling? That might reveal an answer. I don't really know the family members, just what I read, but talk was the father murdered her. I heard talking saying Mr. Jarris murdered Beverly because of sexual abuse. I also remember how people said it was him because he is the last one anyone would expect. Back in those days, it was unheard of. It was just the girl's imagination. What did she do to provoke it? They were told it was love. If the family wants their loved one to rest in peace, speak up. What was Beverly planning to do on the afternoon she was murdered? The official story was that she planned to hang out at her friend's house. Really? On the first real day of vacation since summer, these two adventurous girls were planning to walk a few blocks away and sit in someone's bedroom. If you believe that, then you have never had teenage daughters. This case went unsolved because so many facts went untold.
2: Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, waking.
1: In regards to these groups and any other group on social media that is created on unsolved cases, I would like to speak directly to you. Although we have never met, I hope you will listen to this as someone who genuinely cares and hopes for the best in each of your lives. We have never sat down to discuss Beverly's case in person, but I would like to share my thoughts with you in hope something can be taken away from it. As someone who has sat down in the living room, of Beverly's sister's home and sat on a couch next to Beverly's mid-90-year-old mother speaking for hours about the case. I would like to share a thought that I hope each of you will take to heart. More than half a century has passed since Beverly was murdered, yet the pain, heartache, and hurt was still something that could be felt on each person who loved Beverly. The long drive home After our discussion and interview Was one of the longest we have ever had Because of the pain we felt Was something indescribable It is still lingering with us Even now As we are working on this podcast To tell the world about who Beverly is There is a real possibility Beverly's murder may never be solved Or that the murderer Will never face justice for his actions None of us here May be able to change that possibility Yet we do have the ability To do something Arguably greater We can keep Beverly's memory alive In another half century It is possible None of us Will be here Yet what we place On these sites With Beverly's name Will remain It breaks my heart To imagine Anyone's grandson Or great-grandson Would have to read Anything negative About someone they love So I kindly ask From one Kind Loving person To another Please remember that what we write on social media, it is about real people with real feelings and real families. We all would love to see justice for Beverly, but please be mindful of what is said about others and ask yourself, in 50 years, could someone read my post and consider it factual? I hope that each of you will devote a small time to remember this young lady, the world lost, but will not forget. Husband,
3: I never met Beverly. Um, I married Mary Carol in 1973, and this was not that long after the murder. We met in college. Actually, I met her not in 73; it was like 1970. We got married in 73, and um, the first time from college, I went to Garfield Heights to, for a family gathering on a Sunday, like they always do every Sunday. Uh, Carol told me the whole story, she showed me the scrapbook with all the, um, uh, newspaper articles and that's the first time I learned about the murder. Listening to Carol who listens to these comments on the blogs, uh, incessantly, uh, there's been a lot of cris- criticism of the family that they are not taking an active role in any ongoing investigation concerning this death, they feel that, uh, The family is just totally isolated and not involved, but I can assure them that this is an ongoing and active investigation. There is not a month that goes by that Carol is not in contact with both the police department and the detectives uh, sharing information and talking about strategies. Uh, This case has been before a national forensic conference within the past year. Uh, The investigators involved have reached out to Uh, independent cold case organizations for help and investigation. For them to think that nothing is ongoing at this point is is absolutely ludicrous. And it's it's my feeling that, you know, the, the members of the blogs, unless they knew Beverly personally or lived at the same time that she lived or walked in the footsteps of the family for the past 52 years, anything they post is merely conjecture, irresponsible, and frequently hurtful.
1: Eleanor, you are Beverly's mother. After her murder, why did you continue living in the house?
2: Really, that's the only place we had to go. (laughs) Or we could
1: go. And I understand you had a premonition about Beverly before she was murdered?
2: I had that premonition about Beverly, especially that morning of the day she died. It was so strong. they were having their breakfast, and I just didn't know what to do. What could I do? Had, I, oh, I never imagined anything like this happening at that time. I've never had another premonition.
1: For almost 52 years, you have had to deal with the grief of losing your daughter in such a horrible way. What has helped you, over the years, get through this?
2: I... Had a close association with a lot of priests and religious people. The nuns would all come and see me.
1: How would you describe Beverly to someone who has never met her?
2: Pretty, and she had a good sense of humor, and I guess she had a lot of friends, and some boys were attracted to her. She loved. Uh, she loved all of us. My, my mother would take her down to Higby's and for lunch or no dinner dinner at uh, on the square there at that hotel there every once a month and they enjoy that being together because she loved Grandma. Grandma loved her. I think she once remarked that uh, about her poems that she wrote. could probably make it into a book, and she would become famous or something in that respect.
1: On social media, forums, and publications, a lot of people have suggested that maybe Beverly had a secret life. One such publication mentioned that they felt that she could have been a jazz singer.
2: A 16-year-old jazz singer singing some probably beard. And I don't understand how anybody can start rumors like that.
1: Carol, is there a memory you have that you could share that would make people understand who Beverly was as a sister?
0: She was really funny and wrote wrote the funniest stories and everything, but um, one of my memories is being four years younger when my friends would come over and I'd say, okay, I'm going to my friend Jackie's now, and she'd throw her arms around me and start kissing me like dramatically and like saying oh okay be careful don't don't get hurt but then then when i'd walk down the street she goes i love you i love you be careful (laughs) and it was just to embarrass me Uh, beverly's homeroom teacher who was sister carol ann at the time but she had left the convent since then um had written a beautiful tribute about beverly um, on the facebook page and um, we, I had gotten in touch with her after she wrote it, and she wrote me that she was in shock over Beverly's death, and here's what she wrote. It was a twilight zone period, very surreal, seeing her empty seat in class, like a wave drowning over me over, uh, over and over again, and then having to come up for air. Um, when I was a young wife and mother and teacher, This event seemed like in a distant past. But now, you know, that I'm older and I have an empty nest, the past seems upon reflection in so many ways like it was yesterday. And, you know, it just weighs upon me. In conclusion, I would like to thank Bob Sackett and Carl Begecki. They were both young detectives in the 1990s when they worked endless hours on this case without any compensation it was all on their own time anybody who criticizes Garfield Heights police department do not know what has gone on in the past and is still going on if anyone has any leads please contact detective Carl Pagacki at area code 216 475 5686
1: Evidence continues to be resubmitted for DNA as tests become more sophisticated. There is currently a retired FBI agent working on Beverly's case. If you could say one last thing to Beverly, what would you like to say to her?
2: Yes, I would say I love you and miss you. Okay,
1: then I think that we're Think good.
2: about it every day. Doesn't
1: get any easier after fifty two years.
2: When you visit Arizona.